Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore what it means to be Taiwanese X. 大家好，欢迎收听台湾人网络广播。我是阿秀，用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。This is episode 19， 这是第十九集。The conversation for this episode will be in English。我们这集是用英文聊。Welcome, Emmy, for coming to our show. Thank you. I don't know anything about architecture in Taiwan except that sometimes it just looks very cementy, and then <laughs> sometimes you have really beautiful, like Japanese-looking things. <laughs> yeah, the rest of it is like 1980s ugly. You know, that's the style. Yeah, the style. with like neon lights everywhere. <laughs> that's getting worse, I think. Well, Emmy, I'm so excited you are here with us today to talk about some of the work you're doing in Taiwan on Japanese colonial architecture. So, with that, let's get started. 大家好，我我叫陈惠美，我现在住在台湾，我是在研究日本时代的建筑物。啊、uh, ，我现在在 Instagram 有一直播呃、uh, 这些旧的建筑物。啊、uh, ，欢迎大家来看一下看。<laughs> Uh, my name is Emmy Higashiyama. My name sounds very Japanese, but I'm actually Taiwanese heritage completely.、Um, the reason why I have a Japanese name is another long story. <laughs> but basically, I I was born in Japan to Taiwanese immigrant parents,、uh, and when I was two months old, our family moved back to Taiwan. Or at least my dad did. My my mom was born and raised in Japan to Taiwanese parents, so so I'm I'm kind of third generation Taiwanese Japanese on my on my mother's side, and I'm also technically kind of third generation Taiwanese Japanese on my father's side, because all of my grandparents were Taiwanese subjects of the Japanese colonial period,、uh, living in Taiwan. And then,、uh, because right after World War II, the government in Taiwan switched to、uh, a Mandarin, a Chinese government with、um, with the Nationalist Army. My my dad is the only Chinese educated person in our family. So anyway, we we moved to Taiwan, back to Taiwan for my dad when I was two months old, and I remember growing up seeing photos of my dad's. Family house that he grew up in, which was a Japanese colonial building, and came from a huge family. And so, all the branches of the family were kind of living in the same compound. So it was like it was like this Japanese mansion almost in in central Taichung. I had never been in that house, by the way. But when I was nine years old, my dad was building the house that I grew up in, and what I think of as my childhood home. So, you know, I, so I would go with him to the Site, and he's dealing with all the contractors and designers or whatever. And、um, even though I didn't understand it at the time, I could see he was really struggling with trying to recreate his childhood home. 
in the house he's now building for, for my childhood. And um, there were just a lot of things that, that weren't going well for him. And now looking back, I realized, oh, it's because Japanese craftsmanship that was there when his home was being built wasn't around anymore. And so that's why he was struggling with that. And, you know, you kind of tend to think in a limited children's worldview kind of thing that new things are always better than old things. So, so that was just a really conflicting image in my mind of like, why is, why is my house I'm growing up in now newer, uglier looking than these old photos that my dad grew up in that must have been an ancient old house? You know, so, so that, that was just kind of, I, I never quite understood that. And then um, I traveled a lot in my late 20s and early 30s. And that's kind of when I was starting to piece together the fact that architecture and architectural history has, has a huge story to tell. And that's how I kind of found my way into a field called historic preservation. And historic preservation has all the things that I'm interested in kind of wrapped into one thing. When I first started uh, looking into it, it was kind of like it had history, architecture, engineering, science, all kinds of things. So I was like, oh, okay, great. If I do a grad school program, this would be it. Uh, and then I was in it for about a year or a year and a half when I realized, even though I got into it because of buildings, it's actually cultural heritage. And because everything takes place in a place, that's, that's why buildings have a story to tell and, and many stories to tell over a, you know, a long period of time. And uh, so that's how I started looking more into Japanese colonial architecture in Taiwan. Uh, and that's how you found me through Instagram. What is your Instagram handle, first of all? And what are you doing with the Japanese architecture preservation? The Instagram handle is at Japanese colonial. And I'm taking photos of architecture built by the Japanese between 1895 and 1945. So during the 50 years that they had kind of owned Taiwan as a colony, they really changed the landscape and they, you know, they kind of took it into the modern era because they were systematically creating another part of Japan. And the idea was anybody from mainland Japan could go to Taiwan and know exactly how the city worked, any city would work, because the roads would have similar names, the, the parks would be in the places where you would expect parks to be, you know, road signs were made the same way. So, so everything was kind of supposed to be, it was just another part of Japan. And then after World War II, because Japan was on the losing side of the war, one of the consequences was that Taiwan was given to the allied powers. Um, like Japan had to be punished, so like Taiwan was taken away. And it was given to the Chinese Nationalist Army, um, which in Chinese is the Kuomintang. Or in, in English, you would just like call them KMT for short. And, and they, so they became the new government of Taiwan. And over the next few decades, they kind of systematically were tearing down a lot of things that had Japanese, um, that were built by the Japanese, because before World War II, there was just a lot of conflict um, 
between China, Korea, and Japan, and even in parts of Russia, where they were just greedy for land, greedy for more territory, and, and they're just constantly at war with each other. And in China itself, there were a lot of groups that were, it, it was like a, it was like a Asian game of thrones. And the, you know, there was the Chinese dynasty in, in China that was kind of puppet ruled by the Japanese. And then there was a growing communist party. And then, and then the nationalist party was kind of against all of them. So that's the group that lost in China, but they were really allied with the American and British powers. So they were awarded Taiwan when they lost China to the communists, but Japan lost Taiwan. So, so it, was like a, it was like a musical chairs. And after you know, several decades of being ruled by the nationalist army, colonial Japanese architecture really started to disappear. And now um, it's not so much that it's disappearing, it's, it's more like it's just being crowded out by new modern buildings. And so my whole thing is, and it's, it's kind of tied back to what happened to all the pretty buildings that my dad grew up living in, you know, seeing, you know, and in a way it's kind of like a way for me to time travel myself back to uh, rediscover my own family heritage. And at the same time, you know, it's like a, I'm in grad school now, so it's like a, a school project. <laughs> How did you learn so much about the history? Is it something that you learned on your own or at school or through this process? It wasn't at school because I went to an American school. And so everything we learned that was about history or politics was American history politics. You know, so, so my, my name is Japanese and my citizenship is Japanese and my education is American. So a lot of people think I'm Japanese American, but actually I'm neither Japanese nor American. <laughs> and yeah, it was confusing for me probably all through my twenties because I, I didn't know all this history and my parents never really talked about it. I mean, maybe they did with each other, but it wasn't, I don't know about your parents, but a lot of immigrant parents kind of forget to teach their culture to their kids for, I think, several reasons. One is if they're still adjusting to a new culture themselves, they don't really have anything left over to, to like sit a kid down and explain everything about their history. Plus the kid probably wouldn't understand because it gets too young. I think the other thing too is, you know, when you're not living in a certain area, you kind of don't know all the significant things about it. Or the other, you know, the other side of that is because you live in the place where you're familiar with, um, you don't really take the time to explain the significance to, to your kids. Um, like I lived in Taiwan for 18 years and I had never been to Kunding. And there are people who are here six months and they've been to Kunding five times. So I, I think I was just kind of in the right spot where I was just so ignorant about a lot of things and there weren't really a, you know, a ton of people who made it a priority to teach me about that kind of stuff. When I was 30, I was in this uh, Taiwanese political science, like civics leadership program for a year. And there were a lot of big name historians and politicians who came in and spoke a lot about all these topics. And, and, and it was all in Taiwanese. I didn't really speak Taiwanese at the time. 
So I, I learned a lot just from being exhausted at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, to make sure I understood what I was hearing during the day. I'd, I'd read a lot of books. And, and so that's kind of how, that's kind of how I was able to piece together a lot of Taiwan history and then figuring out where in that timeline the different generations of my family fit in. And so that was maybe like eight years ago, 10, 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and slowly it, it kind of just accumulated into now me talking about it and people kind of like, you know, backing away slowly and trying not to make eye contact because I've like talked too long. Oh my gosh. This is so fascinating though. Cause part of people are always like, why did you start this podcast project? And I have like a number of different reasons, but one of them was also trying to figure out family history. And my dad grew up in Geelong and my grandparents, my dad's parents spoke Taiwanese and Japanese, not Mandarin. And I always found that really interesting. Nobody explained to me why. And it was really only until a couple of years ago that I started reading a little bit about Taiwanese history that I realized that Japan had ruled Taiwan for like 50 years as a colony. I had no idea. I know what you mean. It's kind of like you find out a different piece of the puzzle every couple of years, but don't know why that even exists. <laughs> yeah. Do you have book recommendations? Did you read them in English or in Chinese? Yeah, I, have a, I have a ton. I don't have friends. I just read books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a ton. The funny thing is a lot of the people who they're now in their 80s or 90s, the ones who were educated during the Japanese era, they, they had to go to Japan or the U.S. to continue their education. In Taiwan, maybe they could have finished high school, but the best high schools in the Japanese education system would have been in Japan, mainland Japan. So a lot of them would go there in their late teens, probably, and then uh, finish high school and or, or university. And at the time, so let me think, in about the 40s, 50s, 60s, if they were going to Japan to further their education, a lot of those fields are really developing. And so, you know, where were they developing in the Western world? So in Europe or the U.S. So a lot of them would kind of find their way to the U.S. or, or Europe and, and continue their education in English. So when we think of like us modern people who speak two or three or four languages and we're like, oh, we're amazing. No, because, you know, there are people who are two or three generations ago doing that exact same thing. Like one of the book recommendations that I have is by a Taiwanese. Uh, his name is Peng Mingming. He's Japanese educated, grew up in Kaohsiung and was there in Kaohsiung Harbor when the Nationalist Army came in by, by ship. He and other people, because they were supposed to be good Japanese, polite citizens, you know, or... Like they went to meet the ship. These soldiers were kind of like stumbling off their ship and like stealing their bikes. And, and he was just kind of like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. He later went to university in Japan and US and his field was in air, like space, like aviation law, like in the 50s, like in the 40s and 50s. And so like we think of ourselves as being so advanced, but like he was really, really advanced for, for his time. And um, his story is fascinating because he was involved in this whole independence movement of Taiwan and he was 
from the KMT or yeah from, from the, the KMT. KMT. So in in Taiwan, he was under house arrest and had people tailing him anytime he left to go anywhere. And he conditioned certain spies for like his behavior. And then he like he switched clothes with somebody and then like escaped Taiwan that way and then found his way to I think Sweden, where he was granted amnesty. And oh my gosh, was continuing. Uh, studying law, and that's how he ended up in Canada. And I think now he's a Canadian citizen, or maybe American. But like that kind of person is definitely like the intelligentsia of you know in in Taiwanese history, fighting for independence and not allowed back in Taiwan. It's amazing that Peng Ming was under house arrest and not just like executed. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it got really bad after he left because people like him left the way they did. AMT really cracked down on any possible dissent. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about people who would kind of just disappear and or they would be arrested and then and then just never come back out. The former Taiwanese ambassador to Japan is actually more Japanese culturally than than Taiwanese. And he was really strong into the independence movement too. His wife told me that he was arrested several times or like under, under threat of arrest. And his friend and their friends were too. And one of the torture methods was like stabbing their feet, you know, cause then they also can't walk. And the only way that they can get any relief is through confession, even if it's like beaten out of them. And so he still has memories of that. And so he, when I heard that story, I think he was in his early 80s and he was still like paranoid when sleep, like he's just a very light sleeper because he would hear any noise and think it's the police after him. And he's like in his oh 80s. Oh my gosh. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, in Taiwan, there's this whole like foot massage, like reflexology culture. He doesn't like that because to him, that's a form of torture. PTSD, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I sound like I'm joking about it, but but it was, it was very serious. And um, I think, like, we live a completely comfortable life. And I think a lot of people, I mean, it's not like because you don't live in Taiwan, you don't know this stuff, because there are a lot of people who live in Taiwan who don't know this stuff. But there's a lot of hesitation from, like, the earlier generations to talk about it, right? I think it's, like, our generation that's kind of digging in. Ex- yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah, it was where I was trying to get to. I have a relative who was a police officer under the KMT regime, not because he believed in anything politically, just that was just a good job. And he, like, he just doesn't talk about anything that's political government. I didn't even know if he votes. It wasn't a free society, you know? And so Right now in the U.S., you know, there's such a huge culture war between journalism and politicians. And in Taiwan, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, there was also a huge culture war. But it was that's the difference between a democratic society and a non-democratic society is that the culture war, what we think of now in like a democratic society is very it's a very two way street. But back then it wasn't, it wasn't two ways. Like it, it was, it, it was very one way. It was, it was very oppressive. And we totally don't understand what that's like, but yeah, but hearing stories from some of these older generations when they're willing to talk about it is kind of like, it's almost unreal as almost like a, a movie. If had people should make movies from it. <laughs> 
Are you documenting any of this for like another project or anything? Um, yes and no. I, I do have a team member who keeps telling me I don't do a good job of documenting things in a way that other people can access it because I kind of just keep it all in my head or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to someday after this documentation project is done, figure out how to do staging, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of ideas and they're kind of undeveloped. What do you mean by staging? Well, okay, like for example, Taijong Park is one of like the best examples of Japanese landscape architecture in, in Taiwan. But a lot of people don't know that. And there are buildings in there that a lot of people like to go take photos in, like for wedding or engagement photos. But again, that's not a historical thing. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if there's a way to do, I don't know, plays or like almost like, you know, like Civil War reenactment, Like Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which I, I have no idea what that might look like. Listeners can't see this, but you're sitting in a high school auditorium helping them put together the set. I wasn't intending to be here. Um, this is the stage in the auditorium in a high school where a friend of mine is the musical director. We're doing the Broadway version of Cinderella. <gasps> and so this is made out of styrofoam. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you are so talented. Um, I didn't make this though. And behind me there, that's supposed to be the cottage. And it's like, supposed to be Bavarian. So I was working on a few sketches and then I was like, Oh, it's time for a call. <laughs> you know, what I really want to do, though, is I'm, I'm really into music history. And I spent last week watching the Met Opera's viewings of Wagner's Ring Cycle. And I, I don't know, that was like a that was like a part time job in and of itself because everything was so long. And um, what I really liked, though, was the making of documentary that kind of like went through all the how impossible it was to stage Wagner's operas the way he had envisioned them because he was super ahead of his time too and yeah so I'm doing this for some friends right now and I think okay next step Wagner's ring cycle <laughs> back to Japanese colonial buildings that you're documenting on on Instagram right now are there other projects coming off of the Instagram thing are you guys working on a book or a website Next time I go to Taiwan, are there tips and tricks for finding out where these are? My ultimate goal is to write kind of like a field guide in, in the preservation world. You know, a field guide is a book that you can kind of carry around with you and identify uh, architecture or architectural elements. So what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to collect a whole bunch of buildings and, and document them so that eventually they can kind of make their way into a, almost like a book format. And so if somebody, yeah, so if you go to Taiwan in a few years and you see a building and you think, oh, something about that building looks familiar, um, but I don't know what it is, you'd have this field guide, an app or something, or book, I don't know, and, and be able to look up why why you think it looks the way it does or, or what it reminds you of and then examples of other buildings like that. Yeah, so there, there'll, there's going to be a section on train stations because that was one of the, the lasting legacies that the Japanese left behind was they built the, the old rail system, 
which now is kind of like replaced by the high-speed rail. But the old one had these stations that look exactly like train stations in Japan. And there are a lot of them, you know, still in functioning order. The Taijong one was the last one that the Japanese built and is like the grandest one. And they've replaced that with a new Taijong station. And then the, the original station is turned into a museum. And, and I don't agree with some of the ways that they turned it into a museum. You know, so this field guide is supposed to kind of be like tracking the different iterations of Japanese design. Yeah, so that's kind of, it's headed that way. It's, I mean, it's definitely in the beginning stages. I'm recruiting some interns right now who I hope like, you know, will make the work go a little bit faster. That's so cool. So where are some of the areas in Taiwan where you see the most preserved architecture right now? And is there an effort by the government or other preservation societies if they exist in Taiwan to do such things? Yeah, the main cities are Taipei, Taichung, and Kaohsiung. They, they were the real political centers and, and commercial centers during the colonial period. And so they have a lot of huge official government buildings, you know, like the, the city halls or the train stations, you know, or the big parks. But then um, in Hualien, there are like these little almost like villages the buildings aren't as huge and fancy the the japanese corporate system even now they kind of have like like staff dorms or, or like employee dorms like like it's that kind of culture so they had that back then too and in in hualien there are certain areas where it was like this was this company's you know employee village stuff like that and so yeah there are just different types of buildings. And that's kind of what I'm still trying to figure out how to document and take photos of and post on Instagram. Because <laughs> you write really cool nuggets of information about each post. Oh, I just make that stuff up. No, <laughs> <laughs> Oftentimes, like you go like these like things, at least in the US, right? It's like, it's just like a plaque and maybe they'll have like a little bit of information. In Taiwan, are they recognized as historical buildings or are they blended into the rest of the districts, right? Like, do they have placards on there? What language are they in? Or do you have to do additional digging? Yeah, I had to do a lot of digging and figure, and yeah, I'm piecing information together and, and interpreting it. And, and that's, that is very much a historic preservation thing. Um, interpretation, it, it's basically, how do you take these objective pieces of information, like a building or some object, and tell a story from it. You know, a lot of people who say, well, I don't like history, I don't get that because history is definitely way more than just dates and names of people. It's, it's really, I mean, history, it's, it's a story. And so putting all these pieces together and telling stories is really how we keep heritage alive. The Hakka, you know, they're super famous for keeping a very strong culture. And that's because they didn't have, they, they weren't a landed group. Um, they, they were kind of nomads. The guest people. Yeah. yeah. And so there's a, there's a Hakka saying, which I don't know what it, <laughs> how to say it <laughs> in the Hakka. Um, but it, it basically goes something like, like we have to we have to keep our language alive because we don't have land that we can pass on to 
our descendants. So we have to keep our stories alive. And, and, and you know, and they're, they're much more intentional ab- about that. I don't know about right now. It's true because my mom is Hakka and they have Hakka gatherings. They have a Ke Jia Tong Shang Hui. You know, Hakka food is very distinct. There's no fusion cuisine when it comes to Hakka. Like if you think about it, you know, but, but that's so that the Hakka culture, which a lot of times culture is transmitted through food, that, that, you know, that doesn't get diluted and, and, and kind of melted in with something else. And to the point where you don't even know what Hakka food was originally. Have you been to Japan for the work that you're doing now? Not yet. I meant to. Yeah, coronavirus stuff. I meant to go to Japan and do a lot of digging in libraries there because, yeah, if we're talking about historic preservation in in Taiwan, it's technically they're all like there are laws for historic preservation in Taiwan, but they're big crap because they're not enforced the same way. If there is enforcing of historic preservation law, it's not enforced consistently or regularly. And so depending on how big or small a building is, and if it's, especially if it's in private ownership, there's really nothing stopping anyone from just tearing stuff down. One example that I can think of is in Taichung, there's this place called Miyahara Ophthalmology, and it's like a pineapple cake store. It's kind of weird, right? Like, why would a pineapple cake store have the name of an eye clinic? That's because the building was originally a, a brick building built by the Japanese and an eye doctor, like, is famous as, a, as an eye clinic. And the company, the pineapple cake company that owns that, that building now, they, they save some of the brick walls on the outside, but the inside, they made completely new, and it's like completely Harry Potterized, you know. It, and it's a huge tourist spot, and people go there, and it's nice. Like they did a great job with making it look like you know a Harry Potter world, but, but that's completely inappropriate to historic preservation, and it doesn't tell you anything about Japanese colonial time period. And there aren't any plaques there, really, you know, that that kind of explains the whole process. But that's what people think preservation is in Taiwan. That's a bit frustrating to, to me, and I'm opinionated about a lot of things. So like, it, it's not just like a little bit frustrating, it's like immediate frustrating rage. Unfortunately, it's all impotent rage. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's kind of the direction that Taiwan has taken. I think now there is a little bit more sensitivity to not make such drastic changes like that. But even so, I'd say record keeping is really bad. A lot of it just has to do with physical because it's old paper and it's very humid. So a lot of the records, when the Taichung Library moved locations, they threw out a bunch of those old documents. And I don't know that there are really paper conservators in Taiwan who are like, you know, keeping track of this stuff. So, So I don't know what happened. Anyway, I was hoping to go to Japan to find some of those documents do you think they have a second copy? Yeah, there? exactly. Because it was, you know, Japanese architects and engineers who, who came here. So I was going to go. And then uh, there were all these like travel restrictions that kind of made things a bit late. and <laughs> I can't go now. Oh my gosh. Well, I think what you're doing is really, really cool. I can't wait to see more of what you're finding. 
Taipei Gu Si Yuan. Have you been there? I think it's supposed to be an attempt to represent what Taiwan was like a couple decades back. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, right? If you've been in at all. Um, I haven't been there. I'd I'd like to go because um, one of the things everybody likes to do when they come to Taiwan is go to the night market, and I really don't like the night market. It's too messy, and there's you know it's all like knockoff handbags and foods that I don't really care to eat anyway for sanitary reasons sometimes. But I was thinking what I miss because I used to go to the night market a lot when I was little. And what I miss is like the smaller night markets with the incandescent light bulbs that are like you know strung up with games like almost like arcade games. My favorite thing was、um, catching little goldfish with like the paper paper I don't know scoop and which is probably a form of torture now, but or even back then. But but the, like that's the kind of night market I miss, and I don't really see anything like that. Now, so so if that if that Kusuyuan had that, I would go. <laughs> you know, on the topic of preservation, I think the biggest issue is interest because if you have a lot of people who just are not even open to learning about history or essentially stories of their parents or grandparents, you know, why why would anybody want to keep that stuff alive? Why not just tear old stuff down and build new things? But it's kind of like they didn't know what they didn't know, right? Like, if your parents don't tell you about what it was like growing up in a completely different place, and you only went back a couple times, and you weren't really allowed to explore, or you weren't given the context to explore on your own, then you just continue not knowing what you're missing. And so then, you know, organizations like the Taiwanese American Leona Chang is doing that. And podcasts like like the one that you're doing, like this kind of stuff is really only now possible because of all the tech that's available, and you know, connecting people. There are more and more people who are probably the same as you, but like they go to Taiwan. So even though they didn't grow up in Taiwan, they're raising their kids now in Taiwan. But like their kids' experience in Taiwan is completely different from their grandparents or great grandparents. Part of it is part of it is、uh, just timing, right? Like, I my grandparents and I grew up in the same place, but the government had completely changed. Like, it's not just a time thing. I think that's the. Missing piece that a lot of people don't understand about, particularly Taiwan, is because the culture changed so dramatically、um, from a Japanese culture to a Chinese culture. Not even a Chinese culture that had like a big emphasis on. Well, what I'm trying to say, in a polite way, which is going to take me longer, <laughs> is <laughs> the KMT that came in.、Um, they were an army, like they were. They were. A group of soldiers, and a lot of the soldiers were drafted from rural villages,、uh, and and so they didn't, you know, they weren't educated people who then came and settled in Taiwan because they wanted to, and then like set up schools and museums and you know painted stuff, you know, like they're they're as much victims of circumstance 
And so a lot of them joined because it was like the first military, it was either the communists or the nationalists walking through the village and that's the way they're going to get food, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bad luck or bad timing, you know? And so then um, a lot of them were young boys who were taken from their families and never saw them again. And so having led a, a soldier's life like that for decades and then coming to Taiwan, and then, you know, they don't even know how to ride a bicycle. So they see somebody's bicycle that's just like parked on the side of the road and they steal it. Like, yeah, you could say, wow, um, such a, an educated KMT soldier wreaking havoc, uh, you know, not respecting the rule of law. But also he doesn't know any better. It's, it's not his fault, you know, that he was basically kidnapped and then forced to fight for something he didn't even really believe in. And then never learned to ride a bicycle. You know, so you know, that, that kind of stuff is, I think, unique, like, unless it's kind of explained in, in its proper context, we kind of don't think that stuff is real. And I didn't think it was real. Like, I didn't know until I read that book by Peng Ming Ming. And, um, you know, I wish he wrote more stuff about what it was like growing up in Taiwan. I, I think he's written a lot of things about the Taiwanese independence movement and uh, almost like more philosophical, political type of stuff, political history. But yeah, there's, there is kind of a, a gaping hole of what everyday life- like Memoirs, right? Yeah, in, in Taiwan through, through these decades. Because I'm sure um, my, my great-grandparents who were born probably you know, before the Japanese colonial period started they had a different experience than their kids, you know, and, and then my dad had a very, you know, my parents had very different experiences from their parents. So then I have a very different experience from my parents and it's kind of like only in Taiwan can this happen. Well, I'm sure like in Africa too, cause they kind of have the same progression, but, but that kind of stuff, unless it's explained to us or unless we understand it, I think is why people like us, really struggle with identity in our 20s and 30s and yeah <laughs> you know why <laughs> you put it so well what was the end result of your childhood home oh um i sold it 10 years ago and it was it was bittersweet i i really enjoyed growing up in that house that was that was a really good house to to grow up in uh how did it turn out i just know it was a different house like it it looked different than all the other houses in the neighborhood. And I don't think there is another house that looks exactly like it. So I think it's good in that sense because in retrospect, it was like, oh, I, I, the reason why it looked different is because my dad had this vision of historic preservation without even like knowing the words for it. You know, I didn't know the words for it. But at the same time, I know it wasn't what he wanted. And so that's a bit sad to me because I think now it would be possible to make it the way he wanted, but just at the time, the materials weren't there, the craftsmanship wasn't there. And because I sold the house, I can't like go back and redo it. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll build my own house in a different way. <laughs> but you build your own. <laughs> if people are interested in getting involved with the Japanese Colonial Preservation Project in Taiwan, what should they do? Oh, thank you for asking that. I'm building a website right now that's supposed to have a submission process. So if people, you know, like if you came to Taiwan and you went to a place that I didn't get to, 
you could take photos of it and, and send it to me and then I would post it on that Instagram account. That's, that's one way. And also if anybody has old photos, like if they have any old photos of anywhere in, in Taiwan and they don't really know what it is, send me a picture and I'll try to go find out more information about it and maybe reconnect you to that part of your family history. That's incredible. What's the best way they can reach out to you? Uh, let's see. Um, just send me a message on, on Instagram, Japanese Colonial. And then, you know, we can figure out how we're going to do that while I get the website stuff figured out. I'd love to chat again and get your other book recs. I'm like really curious personally about finding memoirs to read about because I'm always a little bit jealous about how every other culture seems to have like really good books written. Well, I think it's a language thing because it's not like there aren't anything written in um, Chinese, you know, or in some cases Japanese, but stuff written in English that's written well. Uh, I think that's that's kind of the issue. Like, for example, this Japanese colonial stuff, there is a lot of great stuff written in Japanese. Not as much in Chinese, but there is some. And then there's like almost nothing in English. So that's where I... You're the connector. Well, I feel a little bit late to the game. <laughs> and my, as speaking about language ability... Um, I, I don't like Chinese, and so I don't really make an effort like you so valiantly are trying to do to, to learn Chinese. Um, I only read it because I have to, because I need to pay the bills or something. And then in Japanese, I am probably more speaking-wise fluent in Japanese than in, than in Chinese, but I can read even less in Japanese, and I don't write at all. Actually, I don't even really write in Chinese either. Basically, I'm kind of lazy when it comes to, <laughs> like, I, I talk about But this these- is really cool. You can, like, survive in Taiwan without having to read and write Chinese. I think that's something that I need to take note of. <laughs> I mean, it's expat living, um, you know, and it's also kind of like, you do learn it if you need it. You know, so if I got into a car accident and somebody died and I needed to like file a police report or like, or whatever, I'm pretty sure I would pick that up pretty quickly. <laughs> or if I got the coronavirus and I had to be in hospital for a month, I'm sure I would learn a lot that way too. But if none of those things happen, then, then I kind of just live in a, a vacuum of not speaking Chinese. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Cynthia. Where do you hope this podcast is going to take you? That's a great question. For now, it's just a passion project. Earlier, like a year or two ago, I was thinking that the only people I really speak Chinese to are like my parents, because my grandparents, like three have passed. One is basically really sick now. And so I don't have their stories either. And I kind of wish I had gotten it. wish I had the foresight when I was in my elementary, middle school, high school years to interview them. Mm. And so then I like had this realization that if my parents, when they get old, (laughs) we won't have the threat. I'll have like no history at all. If I ever have kids, it would be great to be able to pass something down. That's not just, you know, American culture or whatever. Yeah. um, I think that's the, that's the true value of historic preservation. I mean, we're kind of focused on tangible things like buildings and objects, but really all that stuff, it's still the people's stories because 
especially for immigrants and multi-generational immigrants, in a way, we're kind of like cultural orphans, you know, like true orphans. It's kind of like, yeah, they get a disease and they find out it's genetic, but they didn't know that, you know, and they had nobody to ask. So that's, that's kind of us right now, right? Yeah, but stuff like that, like, you know, you, like exactly the, what you were saying, like, why do my grandparents, you know, speak Japanese and Taiwanese? Like, where'd the Japanese part come from? <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of Taiwanese families where they have, like, Japanese cousins and American cousins, you know, and, and it's kind of like, you know, why did that happen? Because one side of the family married into Japan or, like, worked in Japan, and then the other side, like, immigrated to the U.S., but in a way, it's kind of like we're all really part of the same story. Um, but we don't know that when we don't know other people's stories. We just think we have such a hard time figuring out why our family is the way it is. Thank you so much, Emmy. This is awesome. I can't wait to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a huge field. It's, um, yeah, thank you for doing all this stuff. I, I didn't even know... I mean, it's kind of like, I didn't know what I thought about stuff, you know, I just was always wondering or frustrated that I didn't have a quick answer to things like, where are you from? <laughs> and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, let's just keep in touch about other topics. All right, thanks, Annie. Yeah, thank you, Cynthia. Bye. Bye. And that's it for today. Please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. All right, see you next time.